Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. I work with a lot of business owners and a lot of business owners really struggle with this because you enter in one place and then you grow and you expand, but you never really step into who you become. And so I'm merely showing people who they've become and inviting them to have that experience rather than who they were in the past. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. So in this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Lisa Peterson, who I've known for many years and admired for many years. She's the founder of The Wealth Clinic, author of the Amazon bestseller, The Mindful Millionaire. We've always had similar thinking about those places where love and money overlap. And so I'm just really excited to have her on the podcast. And Lisa, welcome to The Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm so happy to be here. So I know you've moved around a bit, so I wanted to check in real quick. Where are you calling in from now and what, where are you connecting from? I am connecting from Sedona, Arizona. Yeah. And that's home now? It's home now. Yeah, it's been home since 2016, but we also tried living in Flagstaff, which is only an hour away, so my son could go to high school. But we are back, and he is in high school in Sedona, thanks to the pandemic. So, <laughs> And going to high school, going. Yes, he's got one and a little bit of years left. <laughs> yeah, mine too. I've got one little that's middle of junior year right now, yeah. Yeah. Going through the whole college planning piece, right? Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> he's in denial of whether or not he wants to go, but I think that he sees that the tide is turning in that direction. He doesn't want to figure out the rest of his life right now, so I guess it works to go to college. <laughs> yeah, Eli is saying the same thing. He wants to be a musician, so college is, I don't have to go to college to be a musician. Like, no, you got to go to college to be a smart person. That's all. Yeah. To learn how to think. So where did yes. you grow up, though? I grew up, I was born in Oakland and raised in the East Bay area. So I went to Dublin High School. <laughs> then I went to college at UC Davis, and then I got my MBA at Cal State East Bay. All right, cool. So very, very much an East Bay, an East Bay child. When I was growing up, my parents had a hair salon and a facial salon in Rockridge, Oakland. And so I felt like I could be in the suburbs and then I could be really cool in Rockridge. And it, it was a really fascinating time in the 70s, like, you know, late 60s and the 70s to be in the Bay Area. That's all I can say. <laughs> like a lot of change and a lot. And my parents were hippies and 
we would go to protests, we would go to concerts. I remember waiting in line with my dad for five days to get like front row seats to Bob Dylan concert. And we, we literally camped out at the Oakland Coliseum. Like my childhood was pretty cool. Yeah. So that, it's a perfect segue talking about the childhood because I, I really want to know like first couple money lessons you learned when you were growing up in the Bay Area. I think the the lessons I learned were the opposite, like what not to do versus what to do. So my parents had married when they were 18, 19 years old, had no training whatsoever with money. My mom did okay, but my dad really wasn't great. It was like, if he saw something he wanted, he bought it immediately. And we got into financial trouble. Like my earliest memories were about the struggles with money. And I think that what I learned was I don't want to be like my parents and I'm going to figure this out on my own. And I remember when I was seven or eight, I was like, I have to figure out how to get money. I mean, it's funny to be thinking about that young, but I just knew I wasn't safe in my home as far as money was concerned. And I remember back then you find these magazines and I would do mail order to like get things that I could sell door to door sent to me. And then I would show up and I would sell seeds, I would sell candy, I would sell lemonade, like whatever I could sell to make money. And I think that inspired me because I was like, this is something I can do. Like, I don't have to be dependent on other people. And I, that was a big lesson young in life. So our first conversation, I think I was, it was after my book was published, I was on your podcast. And I think my first conversation, I remember we had this similarity because if for me growing up, it wasn't so much that they were spending a lot and I was learning a lesson about that, but I had the same scarcity because we didn't have any money. So a little bit of background is neither of my parents had a real job, like a, you know, a steady income from my age three to 15. And so at 12 formative years, I was always scared of not having enough, much, having enough money. So same as you, how do I get some money? I got a job, I worked, I sold stuff. I sold sandwiches door to door, candy door to door. Totally. I did all those things. But so those similarities, you know, I wonder you work with a lot of people. Do you know other people that have had that kind of experience? That is, how pervasive is that? It's not that common. However, right now I'm in this, I'm doing a, a live keynote and I'm going to be talking about flow and I've been doing a lot of research about flow recently. And one of the things that I came across is that people, so a lot of times it's like athletes will reach these extreme states of flow in what they do or business leaders, you know, who kind of have a book come out of them and all of that kind of stuff. And what I think is fascinating is the research shows that people who go into flow like later in life or kind of go on to achieve a lot in a, the same amount of time that anyone else has have had really tough childhoods with a lot of stress and trauma. And there's a tendency to seek out like you have to control your destiny because your destiny is not going to just deliver itself on your front porch. And I just totally relate to that. So I help a lot of people who haven't had the experiences with money that I have had where I've always figured it out. I've always done really well. I've become a multimillionaire without actually making a lot of money, but just being really smart with it and, and turning it into more. Whereas people who come to me may have had trauma growing up 
but they didn't equate that trauma to achievement. Like I have to figure this out. And so later in life, they're plagued by trauma or difficulty and they don't have the financial situation that they want and they don't know how to change it. And so I'm kind of reverse engineering the things that I've learned along the way that have helped me and then helping people. And what's so funny is you can't actually do it just by teaching money. It actually is all about like the inner journey that changes the way someone thinks about themselves and the way they think about money. And then they start doing these miraculous things or they're like, my whole life has changed, but I don't even know why or how it's because they're not changing their external as much as their internal. But I had to learn that. Like I've been figuring this out as we may have talked about, like I started teaching meditation in early 2000s. I've been trying to figure this out for 20, like 22 years. This has not been a, like a quick, a quick fix. Can you give us an example of one of those things that people have to, one of the traumas, what results internally about that trauma from that trauma? And then what's the solution for it? Sure. I think that one of the most common things, and I was just listening to someone right before this conversation, people end up getting a belief about themselves, even if they're like world-class in the field that they study or that they operate, but they get a belief about themselves of not enoughness, not good enough. You know, I'm good at this, but there's all these other things I'm not good at. And that can translate into our relationships, right? Into the work that we do, into how we are with money. And so that belief system is difficult to change. It is really deeply rooted inside of how we identify ourselves, how we see ourselves in the world. And so I like to take on big problems. <laughs> so what I think is first and foremost, the most important thing is that you can't just like tell yourself affirmations or read a book to change how you feel about yourself. What I have seen is you actually need to be in the presence of, you know, a mentor and a group of people who are shifting that at the same time. You have to be in example of it, like on a regular basis. But many of us you know, not without realizing it, have surrounded ourselves with people who have that same belief. So there's never a reinforcement that you are enough. And it it's funny because after a while, and this is why I think I keep going back to memberships or community building, is it's the only place that I see people make the big changes. And it's not any one thing that I'm teaching. It's the spirit that people have to be around that's consistently saying you are always doing the best that you can, no matter what, like no matter what you're doing the best you can. And I feel that way about myself. And I am encouraging people to question every assumption other than that to the point after a while, they're like, Oh, this is a story that I've, I've been telling myself that I had control about what was happening. I'm telling myself I wasn't enough. I was actually reinforcing this belief for myself over and over. And I was surrounding myself with people who also reinforced that belief system. No wonder it was hard to change. And yet I notice that it really, once it, it sticks, once you really get the memo, like, 
oh my gosh, I'm the same as everyone else. Everyone has a bit of this one way or the other. Some is more prominent than others. Um, and I don't have to live this way. And I have a choice about how I think about my life and how I think about every action that I take. It starts to become, it, it sticks because it's the truth. I mean, we're not teaching something that's not the truth. We're just trying to remind people of the truth of who they really are. It's a lot easier to do that once they understand. <laughs> You know, the, I think the, the metaphor is you're wiping the dust off the mirror, right? And that's the Buddhist metaphor. But so you have somebody that's been doing the same thing with the same group of people for weeks, months, years, decades, you know, multiple decades. How do you, with a one group activity or with a book or with a, with one course, how do you unpack that quickly after it's been 20 years, of, and I know I'm learning, just as you're learning, I'm learning about my stuff too. Like I'm, I'm learning about what I took out of how I was raised and what I took out of the last couple of years and what I, what I keep adding on and how do you stop adding on and with something simple? What is that step to get from here to, oh, I have this issue and I'll see the issue. I can't just take a course and solve that. It's now a lifetime of unpacking and then and not fixing, but making better choices. Yeah making better choices. Yeah, you're right. There is the I prosper process that takes people through that longer experience of rediscovery. And I think that's the journey people go on in, in my book. But I'll give you a very specific example. Again, just got off the call, a call with someone and she's going through this process and she's been doing this work for five or six months. And she comes at it from a very scientific, she's a scientist, like PhD scientist which is always like the coolest thing because like what we're doing is not absent of science. I just don't necessarily focus on it as much because it's not my background. But when the intersection happens, it's really magical. The thing that we just talked about and, and I could just witness what was happening for her is there's one way that she's been positioning herself as a consultant for all for 20, 30 years. And I invited her to give herself a promotion. And I started talking about like, here's your bio and here's the bio who I think you are. And, and I said, at first, it might feel like I'm lying to you because you're not giving yourself permission to step into who you really are. But we got into the mechanics of like, well, you're this. And, you know, based on what you've told me, like you're a world-class mentor in this particular area of study. She's like, Yes, I am. I'm like, okay, good. We're not, it doesn't feel like you're lying anymore. But by the time we're done with that, she's looking at this going, that is me. But I would have never given myself permission for that promotion. And this is something I work with a lot of business owners and a lot of business owners really struggle with this because you enter in one place and then you grow and you expand, but you never really step into who you've become. And so I'm merely showing people who they've become and inviting them to have that experience rather than who they were in the past. You're holding up a mirror and say, look at this great person you are. Do you not see yourself? I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. And that gives them, like you said, the permission to make, to see themselves in the way that you see them. Yes. And I love the context of both business and money because it's one thing for us to be like, well, I'm that. 
But it's a whole nother game to be like, I'm going to put this out there to everyone I communicate with. Like, I'm going to take up more space because I am enough, because I, I see the value that I'm creating in the world. And that starts to create feedback loops because the business or the money starts to come in, but it's fueled from this sense of self that is not like prideful, but just fully enveloping the life and the care and the compassion and the love that we bring into what we're doing. Like it's a much fuller experience than most people give themselves permission to live. And I think part of the reason I can do this so well is because I didn't have anyone doing this for me. I kind of had to figure it out because I don't think a lot of coaches realize the power that they have to change someone's life by that mirror. And I'm just a really good mirror. And, and I had to learn that it was actually that helpful. I didn't know. I didn't know it would help people as much as it, it does now. I had to try it and see. So I'm imagining you just didn't one day wake up and say, oh, I can be this great mirror. Uh, and, I, and I read a little bit and I've heard a little bit. And I've heard you speak before. But could you just kind of go through your career development? I mean, how do you get to where you are? My career development. So I finished my MBA in 92, worked for all kinds of big brands. Uh, I worked for State Farm Insurance as my first job out of my MBA program. And one of the interesting stories that happened with State Farm was I got married to my husband and about six or seven months later, I got a job and he lived in Redding, California, and we built a house there. And then about eight months later, the Northridge earthquake happens and State Farm is in desperate need of people. They were trying a new program because they had had such a bad time with the previous hurricane. I think whatever had happened before 94. <laughs> I was like, it'll look really good if I volunteer to go to disaster, you know, work there for six months. And, he, and I said, but they're not going to pick me. And like five o'clock that night, I show up and I'm like, I leave at 6 a.m. tomorrow. I'll see you in six months. He's like, what? You said they weren't going to pick you. I was like, they did. And I'm going, you know. So six months, I got a very high profile, a thousand claims with some of the most famous people on the planet in Studio City and Toluca Lake. And I was responsible at all of 25 or 26 for millions of dollars of earthquake damage claims. I became a really good negotiator in a very short amount of time with that experience. And it helped me start to really understand the differences between the wealthy and those who didn't have money and like how wealthy people managed, you know, their homes and their affairs and how they showed up to their lives. It was absolutely amazing. And I think it gave me that it gave me that seed that I was like, well, if all those people can be millionaires, why couldn't I be a millionaire? Why couldn't I do this? You know, they're not any they're not smarter than I am or what have you. And I came back from that and ended up going into marketing with a different company insurance then got recruited to Wells Fargo, where I spent the next 17, almost 17 years working in various capacities. And at one point, pretty early at my Wells Fargo tenure, I found myself three or four like people from the top of the whole entire company, which was just unheard of. But it was like a series of events that gave me this huge opportunity. I was managing teams of 60, 70 people. And again, just I was good at it. But the corporate world 
was not the place for me to be. And I walked away from a huge job. Nobody ever walks away from these jobs. I walked away and became a mortgage banker with Wells Fargo because I couldn't handle the corporate politics and the stuff that was going on. I was a mortgage banker and underwriter for several years and became a financial advisor. And in 2014, I was like, I'm done with all of it. I am out of here. I've got my CFP. I have a book inside of me. I'm going to go tackle the world and teach people about their relationship with money. And yeah, that was eight years ago. <laughs> yeah, 2014. Yep. But are you, you're not, are you a practicing financial advisor still? No, I, I left all of, I decided to keep the CFP because it keeps you, you know, fresh with what's going on and how to advise people in that way, but not more from the governance of like, how do you create a financial plan for yourself and tie it into the things that people need to be thinking about. But I love not having any products or any, you know, I love that part of it. It's really fun because I feel like I can point people in different directions and it, and it works for me and I can focus more on the inner experience. And it's funny. I had, I, and this is, uh, I've been blessed with great clients. So I had this client came up to me pretty much the last live event that we hosted for clients. Uh, they came up to me and said, this is late 19, like late 2019, early 2020. I don't remember. I mean, he came up and said, Oh, Jonathan, I get it. You don't manage portfolios, you manage people. So you've actually just kind of shed that, the product, the portfolio part, and now you're just working with people, which is, I think is magnificent. Yeah. And we're not going to get into it today, but, uh, you know, on an outside conversation, I'd love to hear how that works, you know, in terms of, you know, you've got podcasts, you've just published the, the book as a bestseller. And so you're out there. I know you're at the fire community. You're doing public speaking. So I, I just love, I love what you're doing. You're helping people on the ground, doing the things that they need to do in the most important parts of it. And you mentioned this earlier, you know, we all have some kind of a trauma. You use the word trauma. And the first time I heard the word trauma used in sort of a financial setting was in Oakland with ESO Ventures, uh, which is a, is a group that I work with. And this woman said, hey, I see that you're a financial planner. Do you do anything with trauma? And I was like, what do you mean? Those, how do they go together? I, I didn't, this was like just a few years ago. I didn't grok it. I couldn't understand what she was talking about. Um, so could you just kind of touch on that trauma and how trauma affects our financial success and our financial worlds? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many different entry points with this. I'm <laughs> just thinking about even, you know, there was this study done with Kaiser Permanente way back. I remember the dates, but they studied like 14,000 people and they noticed that the more incidents of like adverse childhood experiences. So this is going back to, you know, zero to 18, let's say the more adverse experiences a childhood had, the more likely they were to have problems in relationships with addiction, with health issues, with financial matters. Like they could see the relationship based on the questions that they were asking people and like they were looking at it from a health perspective, but it turned out that it affected like incarceration. I mean, just like the list was long of all these things. And that was really helpful for me because at that time when I first came across that data, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt intuitively after working with so many people for, you know, 25 years with them and their money that people who had had a lot of trauma early in life seemed to 
have it come and affect their money. Now, it was one of two ways, and this is where I get into talking about scarcity. One way is that they're so consumed by it, like me, like I was, that they'll sacrifice the quality of their life and it all for money. <laughs> me too. I, I did that. Yep. Yep. And then, or there's the other side, which it's like, it's always in a mess and they can't get themselves out of it. Like it's one of two extremes. And the one that nobody complains about are the people like us, like people like, oh, well, what's the problem? You have money. It's like, well, you don't know, like probably all the divorces and all the broken relationships with children and the parenting skills that suffer because of your hierarchy of money and relationships. Like those things are really serious and they have an impact in people's lives, but nobody cares about it because our society acts like if you have money, everything's awesome. But then you can also look on the other side of, you know, poverty and the perpetuation of trauma causing, you know, maybe not extreme poverty, but always worrying about not having enough and never feeling like you do. And then using spending as an emotional gap filler, which is what my mom did. Like she would buy just to try and feel better. She taught me how to do that. I had to break that pattern later in life. But I guess my response is, is that I think my work is trauma informed, not because I'm a psychologist, but because I'm a person of a school of hard knocks and I witnessed bad behaviors being shown to me and then I would do them and they would cause problems and I had to break that cycle. And so I, I see a lot of people come to me where they've done therapy and it's been very helpful for them. But the therapist, if they don't have a background in money, then it's tough for them to help them with money or making the links between like, what did this thing that had to do with my childhood have to do with what I'm doing with money now? And I just have seen it so much that I can be like, hey, these are connected. You know, it's not arbitrary. And there's some things that you can do about it. And so in addition to breakthrough work, which is kind of sounds a bit woo woo, but it's really about forgiveness. I mean, it's not woo woo. It's like forgiving yourself, forgiving your family, forgiving everyone. So you no longer have to keep that story going, like really letting it go. I'm an expert in that. And then what do you do next? Because what I've seen is a lot of people want the emotional transformation. They're still scared to go back and become more aware and mindful of money. And so what I've had to do, and it's not just me, it's other people, coaches in my community. I've assembled people that are, you know, just so exceptional in like their ability to help people break the cycle and like start doing new, you know, budgeting and actually paying attention to how much money gets spent and paying attention to how much money you're earning. And those are the things that we focus a lot on. And so you brought up this idea of scarcity that leads me to say scarcity mindset. And I think you actually mentioned this in the book, tunneling, like the risk that the scarcity captures our mind and we can't get out of it. That sounds like that's the work that you spend the most time on. Yeah, it comes up a lot. And because I know the signs, I'm able to be like, when someone's asking a question from me as a coach, whether it's privately or in a group, I'm able to quickly see 
that they've tunneled and they're only seeing a couple options, whereas there's a ton of different options. And so it's helpful to show people their patterns. Like, this is what it feels like to be stuck in scarcity. And let me show you what it looks like on the other side, because I want you to be able to do this for yourself in the future. And I'll start to show them the possibilities that they're not even aware so they can start to say, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that or I'm going to try that. And then when they try the things that they wouldn't have thought of and they have success, it breeds them you know, to go back and think, well, what else in my life am I doing this with? Right. You like give me a sentence and there's four places in the sentence mm-hmm. I want to pull on. So I'm going to go back a little bit. You said something to the effect of. It it reminded me of the thing in your book where you talk about the importance of financial literacy and the fact that we don't have it in the country. I mean, there are 17, 18, 19 states that that it's required in. It's not very good. It's not very consistent throughout the grades, whatever. But this idea of from generation to generation, you have some people who have the wherewithal and teach their kids. And you have other people who do not have the wherewithal or teach their kids horrible lessons around money. And the probability that the former set ends up doing much better is enormous relative to the latter set. So we look today at media and we see inequality is greater than ever, ever. You know, it's a new gilded age. You heard, you pick your headline. You've read it, I'm sure. Do you think that a little financial literacy and a little, I think maybe trauma awareness training would be good for students even probably more important than some of the other stuff that they learn? I think so. I mean, I, I know that I went out and got it for myself. And I know a lot of my clients, the number one thing we hear over and over again, when I ask people like, well, what are your earliest memories of money? Or what, what do you understand about money? I'm blown away that in some of the questions we ask, like 90% of people say, I don't understand personal finance, like 95%. I'm like, okay, where do we start? You know, like, it's a little overwhelming. They don't understand. They say, you know, on a scale of zero to five, they're like, I'm a, you know, two or something. And, you know, and how little I understand, and I don't feel comfortable with my skills. So I think that that is something that has to start really young. But I would also say just as important as the financial training also would be skills to help young people know that, you know, I read somewhere it was like on any given day, we're going to have five events that occur that are going to be upsetting to us in some way, shape or form that are going to derail us like five things that are like, oh, we have to pivot or do something different. Like to me. If we were to teach, what do you do when things don't work the way that you wanted? The resiliency would come first and foremost, because I think that because we're not teaching that, then you have money, which is always seeming to go something wonky. No matter who you are, no matter how much you have, I want everyone to hear you. Like It's just wild, the things that happen. You know, and I'm a multimillionaire and I'm like, what else is going to happen? Craziness. But if you were to teach kids from a really young age and every year they had to go through like resiliency training where they learned 
how to pause, how to think about the various options of how they're going to respond and like breathe. And I mean, just basic stuff that we all need as human beings. And then you taught money like that would be the ideal situation. Yeah. I, I cannot agree more. I don't think, I think we might get more financial literacy training. I'm not sure we're going to get a lot of mindfulness training in the schools. I think <laughs> teachers are, teacher are a little bit overwhelmed as it is, but uh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And it, have you, so have you done that with your son? So my kids, you know, we're just, we're so unusual, I think, in the way that we parent that it's hard to know what it is. Like my kids are amazing. They don't sit and meditate. Like, but everything that we've taught, eventually they seem to want to do. But I have a 24-year-old and a 17-year-old. And yeah, they're not, they've never been forced to like meditate. My parents did that to me, so I wouldn't do that to them. But they are the most balanced, self-regulated people. It's And they speak their feelings and their emotions so that I have the good grace of being able to be like, oh, wow. You know, I'm like, I'm still learning these things now at 55 that my kids do on a regular basis. And they're like, why are you raising your voice? (laughs) Oh, because I need you, obviously, to help me. You know, it's just downright comical. So we've done something right that I actually don't totally know, except for we care a lot and we communicate like crazy yeah. to the point where they're like, we really shouldn't need to talk about these things. I'm like, Oh yes, we do. <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me in the least that your kids would be some somewhat emotionally balanced. Like it doesn't surprise me at all. So you can pat yourself on the back, even if you don't know that's the vibe. <laughs> you are. So I think that the vibe comes, I believe. So I, I do want to get to a couple of things and that is, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast is to separate the things that people can do. We're talking about specifically about their finances that are helpful and move the needle. The most important things that people can do that are helpful and move the needle relative to those things that we read about and hear about and people talk about and the media, you know, goes on and on and on about that are not helpful that we shouldn't pay any attention to. I'm just wondering when you're working with clients, do you see a couple things that stand out as, Hey, these are things you got to do. These are things, Hey, better off you ignore. Yeah. I'll go really bold. And this is like, and maybe controversial, but it is one of the things that has changed my life. And I can't help but want to talk about it. So one of those things that I think makes a huge difference is having some kind of basket strategy around the money that's coming in and where it's going, you know, and the percentages you know, we can figure out what works for us. But the one that I want to talk about for a moment is this goal that could easily take, and it took my husband and I, I think 10 years to get there. So this is not instant gratification, but the idea that you could have all of your necessity expenses at less than 50% of the income that's coming into your home is like a game changer. Like if you can aspire to that and you can dream around that and you can finagle a life where your necessities, right? So what is that? Housing, transportation, food, you know, everything that you need to live your life at the style that you wish could be less than 50%. Then it gives you the luxury of having that, you know, 15%, I'd like to say, to invest, you know, whether that be in 
the you know stock market or real estate or whatever it is. And then you get this time to focus on, well, maybe I'm going to spend 10% on fun and 10% on personal development. And like, I just don't know how people do it. I feel like, because I have been living this way for a really long time. And I think I set that goal early on of like, what's the combination to get there? Do we, you know, we just don't spend a lot of money. So it's not as hard for us to achieve that goal. But the freedom that you get by setting that goal is just such a game changer. And I wish more people talked about it. Is that bold? Yeah. No, I that's I think, people. I think more people should talk about it. I don't know about the exact percentage, but you know, less spending per unit of income is better, period. That's how you that's the only way you build the asset that lets you live off it later. Like that's the only way. Less spending per unit of income. 50% is well, bold. That's bold. It is bold and how expensive it is, especially for young people. But the other piece is, is that we're not, it's giving us the ability to have so much discretionary. It's not that we're going to save 50%. Like it's no. about choice in like the things. Cause I think the idea and what we teach in my programs is how can you spend lavishly? on the things that are the highest value for you and strip away everything else that isn't that. How can you get around that? How can you cut out that stuff that is not of your highest and best, you know, purpose-driven life supporting stuff? You know, that's when things start to change. Because the budgeting, man, like just to like save money. I have been in those phases. That's not very fun. It's not a long time lifestyle, you know? So yeah. It's like budgeting from a scarcity mindset versus budgeting from an abundance mindset. I'm budgeting so that I can spend the money on the things that I really, really want to spend the money on. Right. That's yeah. it's, what, what's, what's the purpose of your budgeting? Is it just to cut or is it to enable? Like that's, it's beautiful. I love what you're saying there. I love it. It's, it's and I would expect nothing less. What about some things that you people hear about? Media talks about it. You know, other pundits talk about it. It's just not doesn't really move the needle. It's not really beneficial. You can kind of ignore it. Name names. No, if I you think, like. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, there's the whole coffee thing. You know, some people, right, love their coffee, and I have gone through phases where I love my coffee, and I think that. I think here's the other thing about coffee or something else that we enjoy, like my love hate affair with coffee is that there's also an addiction there that I have to watch. Like I notice that I just want it the next day and want it the next day. So like, even though I think it's something that's really important, <laughs> what's the motivation underneath it? So I feel like it's the problem that we have is, is this internet filled with all these like five steps to this and 10 things you do here. And none of them are asking like the deepest questions, which is, can you please prioritize your values? Can you set aside some time to get crystal clear about what your values are and in what order are they important to you? And then create your life around those values, because I promise you, you will be a lot happier, you know, maybe not month one or two, but after a while, when you break the addictions, you question the assumptions, 
you'll start finding out like what really gets you happy. Most people don't actually know what brings great happiness into their lives because they haven't given themselves the time to know and to test and to be like, oh, I thought that was really important to me, but it turns out it's not. Sometimes we have to go do things to find out how they rank, but at least you're asking yourself. So so I'd say I don't like all of that quick fix kind of stuff. I'm in it for the long haul and questioning your assumptions about what you value is probably a good place to start. That's great. I think that some, what my experience was last year was, you know, I talk about this. My stage presentation is probably the exact same as your stage presentation, different specifics, but the idea of know what you want and then go after that, like that's very simple, but I never actually practiced it until something smacked me in the face. Right. I worked really hard until last year. And last year I got smacked in the face with my brother. My brother died last year. And so I was like, Oh, wow. This whole life thing's short. I need to, I need to rearrange a lot of stuff. And so that's, I hope other people don't learn the lesson by getting smacked in the face and just ask the question first. What is it that really excites me and go after that? We're getting pretty close to time. And there's something I want to, there's a couple of things I want to ask. And there's about a dozen more things we're not going to have time for after that. But let's a couple of things. First, is there anything that you've thought for a long time and that you just read something or saw somebody and it's, it's really made you change your mind on something. <laughs> I feel like I'm changing my mind all the time. <laughs> good. Uh, That's healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at, at being like, wait a minute. I think I'm constantly blown away at how we have to stay fresh with things because science changes. So something that I thought was a reality and I study the brain and neurobiology and neurochemistry and, and I'm just blown away because I thought it was my mind. I started explaining it and somebody says something, you know, as I'm a teacher, or as a coach and I'm like, okay, time out. Like I, we're just going to pause this discussion and let me come back to it because things change and the science changes. And so for me, I think I'm just learning a lot about right alongside of the neuro, you know, scientists, because that's fascinating studies. And I, and so I would just say that science is changing because the research gets completed. I wish there was more time in the day to like know about all this stuff. But as you know, there's like <laughs> so much, but I, I try to not put my foot in my mouth on a regular basis. So <laughs> Hard to do when you're on the cutting edge, I think. Uh, <laughs> I had this conversation with my son. You know, I say that science doesn't prove anything. Science proves things that are not. And so <laughs> you learn something that's not, and then you go, this is the way it is then. And then you put your foot in your mouth because it's not that way either. <laughs> Later, it's not that way, right? That's, that's kind of- yeah. I like um, to listen to these scientists get interviewed because they're really savvy about explaining it. And I listen to them. I'm like, oh, I need to take lessons of how to talk about this stuff because it's so inconclusive, but they're used to explaining it that way. Yep. Yep. These are things we can't know. What we're certain of is this and this and this, this other stuff, not so much. Is there anything that, and I don't know if you can answer this on the, on the fly or not, but is there anything that people either don't know about you or don't remember about you. They learned it once and they don't remember about you that you really wish that they knew when you, you know, you don't see a friend for a while. You have another conversation with them. They haven't been reminded of a thing, but then they say something. You're like, gosh, I really wish you knew this about me. So you knew not to say that. <laughs> you ask very creative questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I don't know if it's the right answer, but I think that what comes up a lot in our business is that because of all these years of mindfulness and paying attention to my own experiences with life, I don't think that people understand what happens, the transformation that happens unless you've been meditating for a long time of being so focused on other people and like what's important to them comes really, really easy for me. And I don't know anything different than that, right? So the old me was completely self-centered, didn't have an idea of what was going on for other people. And not that I'm not still that person and I have those aspects to myself, but I I wish it was easier to just show people. Well, I show people all the time, but like explain what that means to be mindfully oriented to others' conditions because I think that if people really understood it, more people would want to create that for themselves. Yeah. How do you get to real empathy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that wraps the hard stuff. I do have one short, simple thing, and that's just tell people how we can connect with you. I know you've got courses, the book, tell people where to find you and where they can uh, find out more about what you're doing. There's two websites that you can check out, wealthclinic.com that has my blog and lots of different resources there. And then the other site is mindfulmillionairebook.com. And you know, if you pick up a copy of the book, we have all kinds of freebies that add to the experience. And again, we're just trying to give you food for thought that can change your relationship with money and help you move in the direction that you want your life to move, but you know that money has just been something that's been holding you back. So we'll put all that in the show notes for sure. Uh, so everyone has access to those links. Definitely get the book and then sign up for the extras. I took a peek at some of the extras. They're definitely worth it. And I just want to say thank you, Louise, for coming on. I, I always, always love having a conversation with you. Uh, you're amazing. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for all your listeners. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. 